Uh, let me start with the first question, open-ended question for you. Tell me your um, your biggest goal for the 2016 session would be what, Mr. Speaker? Well, you know, when I was going around the state campaigning, I think the concern still uh, with many Vermonters, even after seven years of uh, economic expansion, is that they feel like things are close to the edge. And so, you know, my view is that it's important for us to support working Vermonters. Um, we need to, I think, maintain the coverage that exists for people who are on Medicaid, those who are really closest to the line and for whom uh, medical coverage makes a huge difference. Uh, we want to see whether we can make investments, uh, particularly for first-generation Vermonters that want to go to uh, college. And I think we want to continue to make investments in our infrastructure that are going to strengthen the economy. I mean, when I look around the state, I see pockets that are doing really well. And then I see pockets of the state that are really struggling. And, you know, I think it's incumbent on us to try to uh, strengthen uh, the economy of the entire state because really at the end of the day, the jobs um, that people get are going to really dictate whether they have a good uh, standard of living. It, hasn't it always been that way, though? Hasn't it always been their pockets of Vermont doing better than others? I think that it's exasperated um, to some degree now. I mean, when you think about uh, a town like Springfield that as late as the late 60s had the highest per capita income in the state of Vermont and uh, was really built on manufacturing and industry. And you look at a town like Springfield now or a Bellows Falls or a Rutland or a, a Bennington, um, what you see is a growing disparity uh, with those communities and communities in Chittenden County uh, or in the Upper Valley. And I think our challenge really is to identify how we can strengthen those economies um, and make the investments that will allow those communities to grow. Now, whether they, you know, do is another question, but we need to give uh, people the tools to be successful. So how do you do that? Give me, give me an example. Well, I mean, I've been thinking, you know, so I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of Springfield, and, and I don't really have an answer. Uh, you know, you look at a town like Springfield, it's got uh, the telecommunications infrastructure. It's got fiber throughout the community. It's four miles off of the interstate, so it's got good transportation infrastructure, uh, and it's got uh, the an incredible amount of space that's available. And I think what uh, we have to do is work with those communities to identify what it is that they. Uh, see for themselves over the next five to ten years and work as a partnership with the business community, with the community itself, um, and then with the state to say, to lay out a plan and say, okay, we're going to execute on this. Um, and th those are not, e not one-five-month uh, period in the legislature kind of issues uh, that we can solve. That it, what it is going to require from us, I think, is some long-term vision and some long-term discipline, not moving from place to place saying, you know, squirrel, you know, all of a sudden there's something else that you're focusing on. 
So do you think it's been when state government or the legislatures looked at a place like Springfield, it's been too incremental and not sort of the bigger picture? Well, I mean, and, I, and what, I, I, I think our challenge is have we really identified uh, four areas like that, uh, how we're going to leverage some of the real strengths that they have. And I mean, it's not just Springfield. I, you know, I bring it up because I sure. spent a day down there and I thought to myself, why are we not doing better there? Um, and it could be St. Johnsbury. Um, it could be, you know, Bennington or Brattleboro. Uh, so I, I, I don't know whether we really have a systematic approach. And one of the reasons that I was interested in being governor was I thought that that was a place where that systematic approach um, could be driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we talk about jobs and we talk about um, how we want the middle class to do better. Well, a lot of that has to do with, you know, long-term focus and a long-term plan. Yeah. I lived in Springfield a year and a half. It's sort of why I'm interested in you talking about it. And yeah. I used to call every Friday at the Eagle Times and find out how many layoffs there were at each of the three big machine tool mm-hmm. companies. Uh, you know, so give me an idea. What I mean, what could Springfield possibly be? It could be the what? Well, I think that, you know, it, with the kind of telecommunications infrastructure and with the manufacturing space there, uh, maybe it's a perfect place for advanced manufacturing that needs, um, uh, you know, high-speed Internet, but also needs, you know, the space uh, and needs to be able to uh, transport that kind, uh, you know, the product out really quickly onto uh, a great transportation infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there some way to uh, unlock the capacity that that has? I mean, one of the challenges that Springfield has is that it doesn't have, you know, a core of uh, higher education facility. So right. um, do you put a satellite campus, you know, somewhere there or uh, for, for VTC or one of the other campuses. Now, we have constrained resources there, but I'm just I'm thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. I think there are ideas that are out there. And part of it is getting the community to say, this is where we want to go. Um, and, you know, a lot of the challenge in, in Springfield right now, I think, is that they do have a, 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 a challenging um, drug problem that they've got to, that we've got to help them solve um, and, and work with them to, to try to, to deal with that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to the drug problem in a minute. You mentioned Medicaid. This is just becoming a really familiar refrain. You, you've got a, a big budget hole for this year. You've got a big budget hole for next year. You're, you're yeah. not agreeing with me or not? No, I mean, I, th- I, I think that this is an issue that exists in perpetuity. I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's we have increasing health costs, whether it's in the public uh, health insurance sector or whether it's in the private uh, health insurance sector. In the private sector, you just charge more for premiums. Because the Medicaid is supported by taxes and everybody hates taxes, um, people are spooked. They're like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, and the fact of the matter is, I think the governor said it right. He said, look, we have a lot of success in Medicaid. We've covered a lot of people. It's a public health success. If we want to continue to have that public health success, we got to pay for it. Um, and uh, I was one of the few people in the legislature who openly supported 
the governor's uh, proposal to pay for it last year. And, you know, at some point in time, push is going to come to shove and we're going to have to do something like that. Um, and the alternative that's proposed by some of my colleagues across the aisle where we uh, reduce uh, Medicaid is not palatable. What you're saying is we are going to say to the, low, the people who are on the lowest end of the economic ladder, uh, no health care coverage for you. And that just that doesn't work from my perspective. So, you know, we have a system that by and large works to get people coverage who, uh, you know, are at the lower end of the economic spectrum. The one problem that we have is we refuse to acknowledge we have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And we've got we've to do that. Mm-hmm. So how do you get the public to understand that these annual deficits may actually be a good thing? <laughs> I didn't say that they were a good thing. Well, I just said more, that more I, people I, are getting health care I said, yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is, I mean, let's be honest. These, these deficits have existed since I started in the legislature in yeah, 2003. Right. Uh, so they, they span, you know, a, a number of different uh, administrations. The one thing I will say is that, you know, the Douglas administration did a great job of negotiating the uh, global commitment that took us out of that cycle for a couple of years. Uh, it just sort of delayed for a couple of years the fact that we were going to have problems in the future. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that, uh, I mean, maybe people will understand it if you cut the Medicaid program. That's not what I want to do. But, you know, I think people understand how good things are uh, when all of a sudden they're not there anymore. Uh, on the, the reimbursements on Medicaid, mm. that, that seems to be a, a major problem. And the, it would seem as though the more people that you get on Medicaid, that that problem might get exacerbated right. too. I mean, I, I that I, that is basically the entire rub. I mean, from my perspective, it's, you know, we can balance the Medicaid budget and we can continue to balance it by just uh, underfunding reimbursements. Uh, at some point in time, though, you don't have access to health care uh, for those folks be- because providers just won't take Medicaid patients. So, uh, you know, I think that any solving of the Medicaid problem has to deal with the, with the reimbursements. And, you know, you see it in Franklin County with the pediatricians um, leaving Franklin County. Um, those are individual circumstances, um, some of them related to Medicaid reimbursement, some of them not. Uh, but I do think they're a symptom of a larger problem. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> we need to – I think we have to look at reimbursements – I also think, you know, there are instances in Medicaid where we are not managing uh, the care that we're providing as effectively as we could. And I think there are some opportunities to learn from what the private insurance market does um, with regard to prior authorization and, you know, do you send somebody to uh, get physical therapy before they get an MRI? You know, let's, let's look at what we're doing with regard to the provision of care and make sure that we're being as efficient as we can there. Are you going to push 
for higher reimbursements? And do you think that would even be a possibility to happen? The only way that we could have higher reimbursements, from my perspective, is if we uh, increase the amount of revenue. Um, and I don't see anybody who has that kind of appetite this year. Explain to people how it is that the Speaker of the House and the Governor could support the payroll tax to, uh, to try to increase the Medicaid funding and the reimbursements, and it doesn't, it doesn't come to pass. Well, I can tell you how it doesn't come to pass. Um, there's a split even within the medical community about whether they want the payroll tax to go forward. I, I remember talking to a bunch of hospitals for whom this was going to be a, a big deal, and they were uh, lukewarm at best, if not um, opposed to it because of the payroll tax component. Um, and if you don't have the people who are going to be benefiting from it uh, lined up um, together, then you just can't, you can't move something that is as politically uh, difficult as that is. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I'd also think that, you know, <clears throat> the way that the proposal was rolled out uh, could have been more effective. And, and, you know, I talked to the governor about this. I've said this before. I just think that as it was initially um, proposed, it, it just it, it didn't hold together effectively. Um, and I don't think that the support that needed to be built had been built. And, you know, that's it's always tricky to do these things because you don't know when you want to roll it out because uh, a lot of times if you roll it out too early, it just gives people a target to shoot at for a long period of time. And by the time you've actually proposed it, it's already dead. Um, at the same time, uh, you don't want to just spring it on people because it's such a big deal and it's not one of those things you can just sort of you know, roll out and pass the next day. And that's in my recollection is I was closer to that, the, the latter than the former. I would say it had uh, uh, more surprise elements than uh, long-term preparation, yes. No chance of it coming back again this year? I doubt it. I mean, sometimes the second time through an idea may sound better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it sounds worse, too. You know, I, 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 act, I personally think that the payroll tax makes some sense. Um, if you can show that it nets out as a positive on premiums. But, um, I, you know, I, in talking with my colleagues last year, I, I just don't think that, uh, I think I was in a very distinct minority there. Um, speaking of proposals that are supposed to even out, th this idea of a carbon tax, can you say right now that this is just an idea that's not going to happen, or what, what's the likelihood it's, on it's that? It's definitively not going to happen uh, in the 2016 session. Um, I, I don't see uh, how this could pass without uh, some sort of regionalized uh, approach to it, um, or without an a large redrawing of the tax code in general. Okay. So. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the opiate problem. Is it is it your sense right now this problem is worse than it's ever been? <clears throat> about the same? What, what's your read on how things are out there? Uh, I think it's about the same. Uh, I think we're making some inroads, uh, but, you know, I, I just think that, you know, this is a, such a difficult challenge for us. 
multi-pronged in the necessary solution. And, and I think that it's a problem that is becoming pervasive throughout rural America and a lot of America. When I talked to them, I was really surprised. Uh, I was at a speakers conference with speakers from around the country um, in September. And Republicans, Democrats, uh, this was one of the top issues that almost every one of the speakers identified that they were dealing with in their, um, in their states. So I think it's a, a, a symptom of the ease of access to opiates. Um, and, uh, and I think it's a larger symptom of um, people just feeling like there's no hope. What more can the state do than what they're doing? <clears throat> I mean, I think our interdiction efforts need to be even even stronger than they are. It, you know, in other words, um, trying to do whatever we can uh, to throw people in jail who are um, trafficking this stuff. I mean, you know, basically throw them in jail and toss away the key from my perspective. If you're bringing drugs into Vermont to hook Vermont, uh, Vermonters on heroin, uh, I, I don't think that you ought to see the light of day for a long period of time. Um, and I'm not one of these, you know, uh, lock them up and throw away the key kind of guys for most things. But as far as dealing heroin or any opiates, you, you're done as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think we need to expand even more treatment. Uh, and uh, I still believe that uh, prescription drugs are a large part of the problem, and I think that uh, we've got to uh, work with the pharmaceutical companies who are making this stuff uh, to uh, tell them, you know, either you work with us to uh, deal with this or, or we're going to come after you to make you deal, uh, do that. Um, and I think we've got to work even more with the medical community uh, to make sure that um, the prescription practices are okay. I, I'm, I'm still worried about that. I, I do think I hear too often from people uh, that for a relatively minor um, surgery or injury, uh, there are significant amount of opiates that are prescribed, prescription drugs. What does it mean that you would, they would, would come after you? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think that many of the companies that were making these opiates knew exactly what was going on, that they knew that they were highly addictive, um, that they were pushing the uh, providers uh, to prescribe these things. Um, so that they could make profits. And, um, you know, I would be interested in working with uh, the attorney general or whoever the next attorney general is um, uh, and other creative lawyers to see if there's uh, some way to file suit against those pharmaceutical companies uh, sort of the way that we did with tobacco. Mm -hmm. Because this is a public health crisis that has been in part created by these pharmaceutical companies. Do you think there was really a concerted effort? I mean, that like, like the tobacco companies seemed to, you know, as we found out in the rearview mirror, they really had a lot of information that the public didn't have. 
Um, I think that's a question that needs to be answered. Uh, marijuana legislation looks as though pretty certain it's going to come up. Um, my recollection is you're not a big fan of this. No, I mean, I, I said uh, earlier in the summer that I would support uh, legalization of marijuana if we addressed a couple of issues. One is uh, driving under the influence, and two is keeping marijuana out of the hands of, uh, of kids and um, basically, you know, youth prevention efforts. And I have, there are a couple other issues that I think are, need to be resolved. I, you know, I've said this, you know, a couple times over the last couple of weeks. I've been around this building a long time. Um, and I have this sort of intuition of when I think things are ready and when I think they are not. And it, this bill just doesn't feel ready. Um, it doesn't feel ready to go all the way through. That's not to say that I'm going to prevent it from going all the way through. I just think that when I talk to people, there are a lot of questions that people are asking that uh, advocates for legalization haven't satisfactorily answered. So, um, you know, I, it just doesn't feel to me like it's going all the way through this year. Hmm. So what's missing? I don't think that we have a really good sense of the regulatory infrastructure, um, how we're going to pay to get all that up and running. Um, I think that there are some challenges around, uh, you know, how would you distribute the marijuana? Um, and I think that people assume that just because we have a Democratic majority, all the Democrats are going to vote for this bill, and I think that they are wrong. And so I think that the, uh, people are making some assumptions that uh, this is just one of those things that would go all the way through without doing the legwork that's necessary, and I think that uh, they're going to be really sad if they don't do their work. Uh, let me ask you about what's going on over in the Senate, this uh, situation with Senator McAllister. Um, I, I'm curious, what, I don't recall you really ever saying anything about this. What's your observation? One of your hundred and one of the hundred and seventy nine other lawmakers here accused of sexual assault. What's your reaction to that? Uh, I'm appalled by the accusations, and uh, you know I'm appalled by the fact that Norm has not resigned. Um, and you know my view is that his presence at the state house uh, will be a huge distraction, um, and for some. I think it will create some level of concern. Um, you know, I think about the allegations that have been made with regard to his treatment of underage women, and I think to myself that we have pages here, um, and uh, we and and who are young, and I think about uh, women who I've talked to who are concerned about their interactions with him, and so you know. I have some real concerns about his presence here. Uh, you know, I don't feel like it's my place to tell the Senate what they need to do um, with regard to suspension or expulsion. I do think a question about his presence at the State House and co people's concerns about safety is a broader issue that uh, perhaps we ought to raise at the Joint Rules Committee. Are the rules not strong enough to deal with a situation like this? 
Well, I can't speak to the um, Senate rules. You know, uh, my sense is that we have not had a lot of situations like this where we've had any sort of precedent in how to deal with it. Um, and uh, I think that the rules, to some degree, are silent on, a, on an issue like this. And so we're um, treading new ground. My um, feeling is that... Uh, an expulsion uh, would be appropriate. Uh, I do think there are legitimate concerns about ensuring that that does not undermine any prosecution. Because first and foremost, uh, you want him to stand before a jury of his peers uh, to be tried for the crimes that he's alleged to have committed. And I don't want to see any action uh, in the legislature undermining that process um, mm-hmm. where, you know, some, on a technicality, he might not have to go to jail mm-hmm. if, you, should these allegations be proven. How much do you think the public cares about this? Um, I think that it sort of ends up being part of a larger picture of uh, do these people really get, you know, our concerns. So I think that um, you know, I, I think people who know about the um, allegations are as appalled as I am and wonder why he's not gone. I mean, I think most people are like, is this guy without shame um, in not, you know, leaving? I mean, I don't understand why he just doesn't say, look, I have to focus on clearing my name, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the criminal proceedings. I don't have time to be a senator. Um, Maybe he feels that's an admission. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe he, the taped conversation that he uh, made is also an admission. So I think he's already got problems with admissions. Uh, you're going to be leaving at the end of this year. The governor's leaving. Yeah. Uh, Phil Scott's going to be leaving his office, so you've really got, except for John Campbell, you've got kind of three out of the four key players here uh, who are going to be riding off. What difference is that going to make? I don't know. I mean, mean, you can't tell me it's not going to make any difference at all. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think that it's going to – it will just be a different environment. I mean, I I do think that it will take some getting used to uh, in the respective institutions, having s- players who've been here for a while and know how the system works um, and know how to move legislature, legislature, legislation gone. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, all of us have proven ourselves to be pretty effective in the building. And, uh, you know, I think that it will be a pretty significant difference. I mean, you know, Senator Shumlin has been a presence in this building for 25 years. Um, You know, I wouldn't, I have, you know, been speaker, I'll have been speaker for eight. Um, You know, Phil will have been lieutenant governor for six. I, I do think that there will be a difference. I haven't given much thought to how it will be different. Our challenge, I think, over the 
next six months in the House is um, to make sure that the institution is ready for a transition. Because I don't think it'll just be me as speaker. My guess is that there'll be other people who will be leaving too. So, mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, I think that it's uh, to some degree from my perspective, handing off the reins to uh, other people, being uh, giving other people opportunities to take leadership roles on particular issues or just managing the house um, and uh, talking to the chairs and the vice chairs about sort of what, you know, th what they see for this year, but what they see for next year and thinking, you know, um, beyond just the session. Do you lose, though, I mean, you say you're effective, but don't you lose some truck with these people? Um, I think that uh, there's that possibility, uh, but I always like a challenge. And, uh, you know, the challenge of being able to be effective when you're not holding many assignments over people's heads. So you would welcome a mutiny? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not welcoming a mutiny, no. But I, I just think that... Uh, you know, part of the reason um, that I've been effective, I think, is that I'm pretty spare in uh, using the power of the office to punish people. Um, and I've been more about trying to bring people together and figure out a path forward. And I don't think that that goes away just because I'm leaving next year. Two more questions. You talked about Medicaid, said, you know, it's a it's a sort of a regular problem, but but so it also costs money. So how, how what are some ideas on how to fill that that gap, which is a pretty significant amount of money? Right. So I need to uh, have a better sense of really what's within those numbers. Um, you know, I've been talking to the administration. I've been talking to the chairs of the appropriations or chair of the appropriations committee. You know, I think that within the confines of the $1.3 billion, $1.4 billion general fund, um, we're going to have the opportunity to close the gap to maybe, you know, 10 to $20 million. Okay. Um, and then the question is, where do you find the other 10 to $20 million? And, uh, you know, a lot of it will be sh – I think the governor yesterday said, you know, we're going to have to shift money from other programs. I think some of it's going to come from there. Um, and then, uh, you know, the question is, if we're at 10 or $15 million, uh, is there some more backfilling we can do out of the budget? Mm -hmm. um, so I said I'd have one last question, so I'll make it two parts. Um, please, if you could share us how your wife is doing, and also, are you in any way relieved and looking forward to leaving here at the end of this session? Uh, hmm. So my wife is actually doing uh, okay. She's in the middle of... Uh, treatment and uh, so that has its ups and downs uh, but the prognosis is excellent and it's just a matter of sort of soldiering through the the chemo and the and the radiation um, you know I'm gonna miss being here I think that uh, it's gonna be uh, this is a place that uh, I have really enjoyed. I love serving the people of the state of Vermont. I love working with the people who are in the building, uh, you know, all stripes. Um, and so I'm going to really miss it. Uh, it's been an incredible opportunity for me to sort of be part of Vermont's history. And um, 
I think that there will be a certain amount of melancholy when I leave, but I am certain uh, more than I've ever been that it is the right time for me to leave um, and it's the right thing for me to do on a personal level. Um, so, uh, you know, it won't be without um, some nostalgia, uh, but there will be opportunities to do other things. All right, begs the question. I mean, you do, I mean, you are a young person, you could have a political future. Uh, I mean, so how, is that just something you're gonna take, evaluate in a couple of years? How do you, how, just not even think about it? Obviously, you're not gonna think about it now, but so how do you approach that? You know, I, I think that uh, I'm always thinking about what uh, the potential opportunities are, are, and it's not just in the political realm. It, you know, I. This is a point of real transition for me. I mean, I, I'm going to go back to the law firm. I need to, but I also want to think about, okay, what am I going to do back at the law firm or what are the other opportunities? So I'm giving a lot of thought to that now. Mm-hmm. Opening like an ice cream company or something, maybe, you know. I don't see an ice cream. I see no ice cream companies in my future. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, it's, it's an interesting time. Um, I've, I have a bunch of friends who are political leaders from around the country who are going through similar uh, transitions. And we've, mm. we've sort of been talking about, you know, what they're doing and, mm. and uh, how, how they're going to approach the next step. So we'll see. Maybe there's a TV series there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>